0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall Taylor.
1: And I'm Jim Townsend.
0: And we're so glad you can join us. In recent weeks, reports have surfaced that the Biden administration is harboring doubts about the prospects for the Ukrainian Army's widely anticipated spring counteroffensive. While the United States and its European allies have publicly supported Ukraine's efforts to retake more territory, The tone has reportedly been somewhat different behind closed doors, with officials worrying about the potential impacts of an unsuccessful military operation on continued domestic support for Kyiv. Even in the case of limited territorial gains, it is far from clear that the counteroffensive will lead to a breakthrough, creating the conditions necessary for a resolution of the war. As the risks of a long, protracted conflict loom, how should we evaluate Ukraine's coming counteroffensive and its likely effects on the broader trajectory of the war? To discuss this and more, we're very happy to have Mike Kaufman back with us on the podcast today. Mike, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me back.
0: Um, For those of you who um, don't know Mike, which means you haven't been listening to the podcast much. Uh, He is the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA, as well as an adjunct senior fellow here at CNES. All right. Um, You know, we haven't done an episode looking at battlefield dynamics on the war in some time. So maybe, Mike, you can just start by setting the table for us and giving us a little bit about where we are in this overall arc of the story.
2: Yeah, sure. So I think right now we're in a transitional phase in the war. Russia had launched a fairly old-timed and lackluster of winter offensive in late January. That offensive had largely run its course in February and March. It involved a series of fairly unsuccessful battles for the Russian forces were in exchange for expanding manpower material and you know maybe six weeks to eight weeks worth of artillery ammunition they really didn't get much in terms of any kind of strategic gains they also didn't get much uh in a sense of territory the point of the offensive was obviously to try to capture the donbass and that didn't happen uh the only area where they have made steady incremental gains has been in Bakhmut and around the city at this point russian force i think captured most of the city by most i think we mean maybe over 75% uh and and surrounding areas and ukrainian forces are still holding a chunk of bakhmut uh but that one particular battle doesn't doesn't look nearly as good although there's you know competing opinions as to what extent it was worth it and and whether the strategy of defending bakhmut makes sense that's so kind of a proxy it's become a proxy in in other kind of tribal arguments in uh, my particular subfield. So it looks like the Russian military is largely shifting to a defensive posture now across most of the front in preparation for looming Ukrainian offensive. And the Ukrainian offensive operation is likely to happen still, in my view, uh, later this spring. Since there's not a tremendous amount of spring left, I think we're clearly looking at some point maybe over the next six weeks. I don't know that for a fact, of course. Uh, the offense is going to happen when it happens, and only Ukrainians know when they're going to actually launch it. But that offensive promises to be an important inflection point in the war, and it is likely going to be the decisive phase of combat operations this year. Can't forecast that far into the future, but uh, stakes are pretty high uh, when it comes to this offensive operation. And we should actually discuss why that is. And should they be as high? I, I like your opening and, and how you kind of began this conversation. So I'll, I'll leave it at that as a kind of a scene sir.
0: Yeah. Before we get to the counteroffensive and prospects and how it might play out and the factors that are affecting it, I I mean we were all looking to Russia's offensive over the winter with some concern about what they might be able to accomplish. And there was this weird period of like, is this the offensive? Has it started yet? Has it peaked yet? Is it here? Is this it? And th- that to me. That, that was a weird kind of dynamic because it was so underwhelming um that like that even you know from here we couldn't even tell that it had actually begun and when um what do you think accounts for the like significant underperformance in over the over the winter for Russia? I mean why isn't that they weren't able to at least garner um a bit more oomph um in in that offensive
2: uh sure. so I think objectively speaking, the Russian military had barely stabilized their lines after two defeats in the fall, and uh, the process of mobilization could only really generate force quantity, but you can't replenish force quality and in a few months. So they really didn't have the capacity to transition from a stabilized defense to an offense. They lost a lot of their best leadership in the military. They lost a lot of their more experienced troops. Uh, they lost a lot of their better equipment, and they look like they were also constrained to some extent on artillery ammunition. So the offense, offensive potential, really wasn't there. They seem increasingly incapable of any sort of large-scale combat operations. So all of these was fairly small operations distributed across five, six battlefields, or you know, acts of attack. And none of those axes could they really establish a sufficient advantage over Ukrainian forces. Ukrainian military was also focused on reconstitution, right? But, you know, land warfare favors the defense, right? And the Russian military just couldn't establish a sufficient advantage, whether it was in fires, whether it was in manpower or in material, over Ukrainian forces in most of these areas. And that's why I thought the offensive was all time. I didn't expect much of it. A good question is why expectations were so high, and I would say twofold. First, uh, Ukrainians, particularly Ukrainian officials, put out very, very high expectations regarding the kind of operation Russia could launch. And I don't know what that is, but I think maybe their own intelligence led them to believe that this was much bigger, could be much bigger than it truly was. And second, uh, no offense to colleagues in media and journalism, but they kind of bought this narrative of a looming Russian spring offensive, and even though the offensive started in late January, you couldn't convince them that this was the offensive, and thus it had started. Because once they, once they adopt a narrative and a particular editorial line, they will stick with it for weeks. They will tell you the earth is flat, no matter how obvious it is that it's around, for many, many weeks until eventually that narrative is not sustainable. No offense, but I watched this play out in real time. It was a very interesting learning experience for me to see that the offensive had clearly started, that it wasn't going well. And for weeks, newspapers were writing that we're still waiting for a looming Russian spring offensive and some other imaginary army that they have made up that's going to follow this army.
1: Well, you know, if if I could jump in there, Andrea, um, I I think that's the problem we've got with the Ukraine, uh, the so-called Ukraine looming offensive as well. Uh, again, we're hostage. A lot, you know, folks on the outside are really hostage to what the media says. And I love the the media guys too that call and 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 they're trying to search out the you know where things are going. But they do hold on to this narrative, and that's the problem I think we're really facing in a big way now with with Ukraine. and that uh, that you know, I just keep thinking to past uh, wars. You know, these things go on for years, and you have an offensive, and it doesn't so go so well, and then they try another one, and it. You know, and all the while the domestic uh, populace is getting upset with whether it's Abraham Lincoln or FDR. You know, when are we going to see victory on the battlefield? But I think we're seeing with this, this this Ukraine of, offensive that's that's going to happen. Um, maybe you'll be successful uh, right off the bat. Maybe not. Maybe it's it's not going to achieve as much. But but again, we've driven the media narrative to have such high stakes on it. And I guess I guess that that's one thing. But also in our own political mainstream, uh, a lot of uh, U.S. support and and uh, talk about uh, assisting Ukraine is going to be impacted by what happens. So uh, so whether it's the um, p- uh, the um, media uh, analysis and narrative that's driven this thing to make it a, a very. Uh, you know uh centerpiece of of uh, the Ukraine strategy or whether it's because politically uh, they're looking on it that way. Um, I I you know your, your the comments you made about uh you know the, the the media part of it and concerning the Russians I think it's playing out now and it's just I wish we could find some way to tamp things down and tell everybody just let this play out and quit raising the the bar higher than it needs to be so it's no question just event
0: <laughs> Mike you can respond um but just uh, you know thinking about Russia's lackluster offensive does it tell you anything about the future trajectory of the war I mean I I get that Mounting and putting together offensive potential is not necessarily the same as being able to hold a defensive line. But was there anything in this lackluster offensive that tells you anything that helps shape your expectations of how things will develop looking forward?
2: I mean, what told me is that Russian offensive potential is quite circumscribed. They can only use a small part of their force for offensive operations. It doesn't tell me what the rest of the mobilized force can do in terms of defense, right? This has proven to be a war where uh, the defense is a lot easier and more successful, especially when prepared. Um, It also tells me that Russia probably will not be able to sustain this war without a second wave of mobilization, which they are desperately trying to avoid, but I don't think that is avoidable for them. I think at some point later this year, they're going to have to conduct it. I'm not sure where that's going to take them. But in general, I see quite limited Russian potential to take Ukrainian territory, certainly this year. But I've been on the record for a long time saying that this is already a long war. Is likely to become a protracted war. People assume that the word protracted uh, confers indeterminacy, right, or some sort of stalemate. That's not the case. Okay, protracted just means it's going to be a longer war than it is now. And it's already a pretty long war by interstate conventional war standards, by the history of All right. Um, On the Ukraine offensive, this is a really interesting topic. So first, the the real reason why the perceived stakes are high is because from a policy standpoint, there is no articulated plan B or theory of success beyond this offensive that I have heard. This is the first issue from my point of view. Second, because of that, stakes have risen. And, you know, in my own sort of uh, kind of layman's interpretation of what I'm reading in, in articles like the one you raised, Andrea, I get the impression that maybe policy folks are now trying to hedge and mitigate the expectations in the event this doesn't go so well, not necessarily because they're pessimistic, right, but because they want to be very cautious about how the offensive is gauged as a success or failure. They've not put out there any criteria for what success or failure looks like in the offensive, meaning how do we know if the offensive is successful or not? Right, Jim? Is there? I mean, Ukrainians have not given a specific objective, obviously, because they're not going to betray the goals of the offensive and the operation. But people will look at it and they will say subjectively whether or not whatever they're seeing matches what they expected to come out of. it. And I guess the whole the whole question is subjective, whether or not Western countries think. That what Ukraine achieves is sufficient relative to their hopes, because the outcome of the offensive uh is quite important to uh, Ukraine's ability to gain further access to Western military assistance, right? European countries and others right. look at it, right? I mean, that's a fair. I mean, every Ukrainians uh fully appreciate this, and everybody here appreciates that too. That depending on the outcome of this offensive. Uh, folks who have already spent a lot of money or provide a lot of equipment and ammunition to Ukraine will gauge what the likelihood of further success is.
0: We've been in discussions maybe where this idea that it may be a one-shot offensive has come up, in large part because um, clearly the United States, along with European allies, have surged so much um, in terms of military aid and equipment, and it is unlikely that we would see this kind of... Um, clustering this kind of concentration of uh, capabilities, again, given kind of shortages on our own supplies, potentially for political will kinds of reasons. And so is this going to be kind of the best opportunity that Ukraine has to retake territory? Or is that, um, am I feeding into this media narrative? And that's a very unhelpful way of thinking about what we're looking at um, later this spring.
2: Um, I think best, yes, only no. I think that the the right way to think about this operation is that uh, probably for uh, the the foreseeable future, at least in the near term, uh, most of the investments have been made behind this offensive operation. I do not see because it has not been announced or declared, Another major effort to arm a significant number of Ukrainian brigades with Western military equipment, and another promised infusion of large amounts of artillery ammunition to enable a follow-on offensive that could happen and that could be declared, let's say this summer. Right? I don't not know, I don't know, and so I won't speak to what I don't know. However, uh, this offensive operation in of itself represents a window of opportunity. That is the right way to think about it, because it does not represent a Western effort to provide Ukraine a sustained advantage. That is, after this offensive, no matter how it goes, whether it's successful, not successful, and we can't gauge because of your subjective interpretations, all all of us have our own, the one thing that is very likely is that the war may well return then back to a nutritional phase, similar to what we've seen in the last five months, because there is no stated promise or plan that I'm aware of to provide Ukraine a sustained advantage after this operation. I'm open to your thoughts, whether you interpret policy direction differently or if you've heard differently. Well, I mean, that's a great
1: question. And I, 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 I you just don't hear it. You hear these selective leaks, like the one that was in the Politico article just a, a little while ago, Um, I, I, I I do appreciate in the administration where they're trying to deal with expectations, but I, I tell you dealing with expectations by trying, by, by casting doubt, you know, like, well, this might not go so well. I mean, I I wasn't there. I didn't hear what they said, but, but, but that's no way to lower expectations is to say, well, this might be a, a failure, you know, this might not work. I, it's, I I think um, you know this idea of saying this is a window of opportunity, we've got to let it play out. The way wars work is it's one foot in front of the other. We're gonna you know, we can't sit here and and allow this to become a one- shot offensive. you know if 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 I were in the administration, I would be on my high horse saying, we've got to get the word out to make sure that whoever is saying this or or thinks of this as a one shot, and I understand why they would, but 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 if that's what happens, that feeds right into Putin you know, uh, and 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 into his expectations. So I really think the administration has got to do a better job in terms of shaping expectations, trying to define a bit what this is and and not casting doubts. You know, that's not the way to do it. They they have got to have a better way of trying to educate everybody uh, as best they can about how warfare can unfold. And you can't sit there and hold on to an offensive and make it into something that, Uh, It may or not be because we do have a, a, a lot ahead of us. And I do wish they would be smarter about this. I really do.
0: But I I mean, you can see that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place in a political position where, I mean, this is the sentiment expressed in a a very good political article that talks about, well, if um, things don't go well, if Ukrainians don't accomplish, according to this subjective definition, as much as people had hoped for it expected, then the administration is going to be criticized for not sending enough aid and not doing enough to allow Ukraine to be more successful. On the other side, on the other flank, there is this kind of movement, and I'm uh, just pulling up as I'm talking about this. That GOP lawmakers are also uh, urging the Biden administration to stop sending "quote unquote" unrestrained aid because of the risk of escalation. And so they're like they 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 are being criticized. So to your point, Jim, having a more clear, concise kind of theory of the case i think would be helpful to try to to because part of this is springing up precisely as you said because of the lack of clarity of what they're trying to accomplish and their inability i think to set expectations appropriately
1: you know i think they're and sorry to jump in uh, mike but 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 you know i think they're letting and i don't and i again i understand this but they're letting presidential campaign politics and they're letting the republicans what shapes how they're talking about this. So they ricochet between those two extremes, uh, Andrea, that you very well laid out. The part of the Republicans say this, the other part, but if they're going to be responding to the politics, uh, and by by sh- sh- you know, reshaping the frame of what we're doing, uh, based on politics on the hill or presidential politics, they are doing a huge disservice to uh to the overall goal of what we're trying to do with uh. You know, with with Ukraine, and while I I'm so sorry that the poor administration is caught between this rock and a hard place, like you said, and they are. I'm so sorry about that. But every administration that's involved in war, I mean, whether it's the Roosevelt or whether it was Lincoln, as I've mentioned already, or they're always critics. I have a shelf here of of hearings from the Civil War that Congress had hearings on the how well the Civil War was going. Uh, you know, so you you always catch it. But they have got to man up here. Uh, the administration and they have got a chart a course that's more mature and 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 tries to explain this thing in a mature way and they really don't uh, I'm sorry to say that but they they just haven't done it in a in a very uh responsible fashion in
2: some ways. so Mike, what do you think um well, I think they have a tough road to hope because some of these leaks are going to do the explaining for them in the interim. Uh, as they as they trickle out in the Washington Post as to what the different assessments and interpretations have been saying uh, in the NAPSE community. Uh, look, what I think is that you know the administration has been balancing between kind of three broad objectives: strategic defeat for Russia, Ukraine, managing escalation, right? And probably there's a healthy debate on whether or not. Uh, defeat for Russia has already been achieved. Uh, this is sufficient, and then the question is, what does victory for Ukraine look like, and how to balance that with escalation management, which is also an imperative. Um, you know, my my sense is that I think that so far in the war, policy folks have been willing to let Ukraine publicly define what victory or success looks like, and that's closely tied to. Uh, liberating territory, right, to, to right. what's happening on the map. Uh, that is a, not a theory of war termination, though, because the, the reality is that I've told you, even though the is wildly successful, more successful than you can imagine, this war could very well continue as just a cross-border war of attrition, right, as a war between two states. I mean, there's an assumption that a significant defeat may – compel Moscow to negotiate, but I'm actually quite skeptical of that, sto- of that score. Sure, I think it's a great problem to have. It's better for Ukraine to retake territory and then see if, if Russia is willing to negotiate from a position of weakness, but I'm I'm very pessimistic in that score. I don't hold out a lot of hopes that Putin's going to negotiate. Um, I agree. I agree completely. Right that if the offensive does deliver a real success, right, then then Ukraine rightfully will maintain the expectations that they can win and that the administration will then have to quickly come up with what the next phase looks like. And I'm actually very puzzled as an analyst because I don't understand what my own country's plan is for the next phase of this war beyond the next three months, right? Like, one way or another, the next three months are probably not going to decide this war. Jim, that's a very fair assessment, I think. However, it plays out. Do you believe that the, that this coming offensive is going to decide this war? Even if it's very successful, I am skeptical that that's going to end the conflict. I agree. I, no, I, I guess. I,
0: but the, but there, so militarily, no. But I guess the big question is politically what it does in terms of sustained public support and kind of lawmaker support to continue equipping Ukraine. So, like, I right. take your point militarily. No, it's not going to be decisive. And just as you said, Ukraine can be wildly successful. But that even then, that doesn't mean that it's an end to the war. I mean, I love your point. I use it all the time, Mike, that it's the loser that decides when the fighting ends. Um, it's a it's a brilliant point. And, and so no matter what, we are looking at a long protracted conflict. I guess the worry is the political will piece of it um, and but- whether or not this a, a lackluster counteroffensive does start leading to, you know, the, the the aid and support and training and other things that Ukraine needs to start a kind of downward slide, which then puts Russia in a better position relative to where it is now.
1: But that's where the administration has, can play a role here. I mean, they—they're they, the only ones who can play the political role. They have got to. If something like that happens, where whatever the expectations are of a of a you know successful offensive, whatever the re- Republican definition of that is, um, if if it's not met. Uh, and it looks like something else, and the media is spinning it a certain another way as well, The this is up to the administration then is to go to the Congress or to, to the American people and try to explain this. And if they wait to the last minute, if they wait until something on the battlefield forces them to make a narrative kind of posture, it's too late. They need to be doing that now, I think. And if these leaks to Politico or, or interviews or whatever they were that fed this article, if that's, if that's their attempt, to prep the, the political battlefield here, they, you know, they're crazy. Um, you know, I think Mike, I think you're right that leaks will do it if they don't do it themselves. You know, they, the administration and I, and I know I'm coming down hard on them, and I don't, I'm, and I'm sorry about that, but I, I really do feel that uh, they've got to be more vocal here and talk about what's what's going on uh, before this offensive starts. They've got to set everybody's expectations. And, um, and I don't see any attempt to do that. They kind of seem to be taking it day by day. But anyway.
2: Yeah. I'm typically not critical of the administration because I know that D.C.'s greatest pastime is sitting on your couch and criticizing people who are actually in government trying to get those things done without well, appreciating right. the context, issues they're working through, what they're trying to balance, right, and how difficult it is. And all of us who have spent time in government can can un- can understand and appreciate that. But I will be critical in this particular in this particular podcast today because I'm with you, Jim, for a couple of reasons. First, you cannot fight a war one offensive at a time, separated by six months. Okay, right. This is not a great plan, and this is exactly so far this war has been going. All right. Second, you cannot wait for the outcome of the offensive to decide what you're going to do next. Okay. That doesn't yep. mean to me at all. Third. I don't actually hear a story of how we're going to sustain Ukraine's war effort via air defense, artillery ammunition, further provision of equipment. I believe there are efforts made in this regard, but I have not heard anybody explain to me what they are, right? They don't have to explain to me, just to the general public, or to set expectations amongst even just Russian. No wonder the Russian leadership has a strategy extending the war. Because they believe that they might have this war in year three, four and five, because nobody in the U.S. is articulating what four and five look like. It's only the next three months of the offensive and everything hinges on this offensive. Right, Jim? So you can imagine- right. No, that's exactly
1: right. Let me let me I'm sorry, Andre, I'm running all over you here. But but, uh, Mike, I'm with you. And, and just to add on that, you know, sitting on a on a on a couch. I And I mean, I was in government, too from many years, and I've gone through a lot of conflicts. So you know I'm, I'm not you know, so I do know something about what I'm talking about and and I and I agree, Mike, about it's easy to sit on your couch and throw rocks like you can do on a podcast. But I think an important point for the administration is that they do not know what they what it looks like on the outside. I know what it's like to be in the Pentagon for 30 years, you're in this armored bubble and you think you're running the world, and, and you don't care what people on the outside are saying because you know what's happening, you're pulling the levers, you're going to make it happen. And and if everybody gets off your back, they'll see that what you're doing is the right thing. I, I know that's what it is. I think for us who have been in the government, we have to say these things to them to say, look, you don't know what it looks like out here. Hello. You know, you, let, let us tell you uh, what we're seeing here. And that's kind of what we're, what we're doing here. And and I agree. I'm venting a little bit, but it's been frustrating. So, uh, so over to you, Andrea. You get to talk.
0: Yeah, no, well, I think so. One thing I wonder is, I mean, the the calculus that they're making, and um, I mean, obviously, Mike, as you said, one of the overarching principles of this war for the administration has been avoidance of escalation. So they have very heavily weighed the risks of escalation. And I'm concerned that they're underestimating or not adequately weighing the risks of protraction because like there, there isn't a plan for protraction. And to me, the longer the war goes on, I think they the greater the risk becomes that U S um, and Western support wanes over time, which could put us in a situation where Russia in years three, four and five, Mike, like you said, could take more territory. I mean, we could really end up in the worst of all possible worlds the longer this war goes on and so it's I mean that's the really difficult balancing act in my mind is like yes they very well recognize the risks of escalation I don't think they're adequately weighing the risks of protraction because to your point Mike there isn't a plan for a long a long war so
1: yeah I agree and you know if they were worried about protraction Uh, They would have been providing more equipment so that so that they can get a quick resolution of this. I mean, theoretically. Uh, But I think I but I but they're just dribbling this stuff out. How many Abrams? Thirty five. You know, so they're dribbling this stuff out, which guarantees a protraction to my mind.
0: Yeah, Mike, I in this scenario, though, of protraction, which is pretty clearly what we're looking at. It already is protracted. I mean, we're a year in. Um, But Um, What is your view of Russia's ability to sustain the war over the long term? I mean, how are things looking on their end in terms of ammunition and every manpower and all of the things that would go into fighting this war for years and years?
2: Uh, Disappointing answer. It depends. And I don't know. So, (laughs) you know, and if I could predict the future to that extent, I wouldn't be in this business multi-living on an island somewhere because I, I'd be able to, uh, to, to successfully engage in this kind of sp- specific forecasting. Here's the way I look at it. First, on sustaining this war for at least several years, yes, they can do it, but I don't and do it in a way that allows them to establish a decisive military advantage over Ukraine. That is, in terms of artillery ammunition production, uh, being able to pull equipment out of storage, it will increase over time. And I also do not know what role China will play in this, but it sounds like China's playing an increasing role and that its policy and position is steadily shifting on this war. And so I need to really caveat that that is a support, that's an important outside factor to consider. But in general, I think on the Russian side, uh it the the ability to put these things into service. Will steadily improve, but it's going to be anemic relative to need, right? This is this is one way to look at it. On the economic front, I have no idea. Like I am like living through this like every other analyst looking at this. And it really depends on how a host of things will play out. I mean, economically, it looks like Russia can sustain this war for some time, but ultimately their position is not sustainable. Their ability to for the state. To receive revenues from exports of energy is now constrained, it's crimped. Um, Their budget expenditures increased significantly, especially due to the war. And that overall not sustainable, in my point of view It's just a question of, you know, how many years we're talking. Um, And I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to engage in intellectual tourism here, except to say that it's it's a pretty uncertain picture. can Russia sustain this war for the next several years? I think so. Can they uh, substantially change their fortunes on the battlefield? I am skeptical. OK, uh, can they keep this a protracted war, this war that goes on for three, four five years? Probably. All right. I think that's a that's a fair assessment. You know, they are aligning supply chains. They are still able to make a lot of the precision guide weapons. I've said this before. Sanctions and export controls are not talismanic. They take a long time to have effects. Countries adjust and adapt to them over time. So Russia will face growing constraints, but they will also to an extent be able to muddle through. You know, the big questions is on the Western side, what does Western material assistance to Ukraine look like after this? I think it will continue. I actually think we're 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 consistently underselling um, the extent to which there's good political cohesion and willingness to support Ukraine's war effort. Part of the reason for that is because administration folks are not making a great case for what that looks like beyond this offense. Um, You know, so now they're stuck in political trying to shape expectations rather than discussing what what the war looks like after this offensive operation and why it doesn't necessarily end with this offensive operation, independent of what happens. Uh, I think part of it's also, you know, people get really wrapped around the axle of things that look like potential policy successes or politically symbolic, but aren't very relevant to the course of the war. Like, should we give them F-16s or should we give them Abrams Knights, These kind of issues—they're interesting topics of conversation—but to me, it's all—it's all about aggregate, right? Artillery ammunition, um, armored fighting vehicles to equip nine-plus brigades, things of that nature, and and. What, what the individual items are to someone like me is, is actually not that important. And, and the same thing, conversation on F-16s instead of a robust conversation on how to sustain Ukrainian air defense and solve their problems over the course of this coming year, which to me is much more significant. OK, so this is kind of the way I look at it, I think that I, I think that on the Western side, there also is a clear theory and you see a for how to support Ukraine in a sustained war. But not a great story um, as to how Western countries will provide Ukraine with a sufficient advantage down the line. Beyond this one operation, and that's why the one operation does look like a limited window of opportunity. And so much begins to hang job of this one operation. And then the impression I get, maybe fairly or unfairly, is that. It will be five, six months after that before the West is able to put Ukraine, you know, in a position to conduct another offensive again. I'm just guessing, just putting a random number out there for a very basic reason. If you wait to see what happens in this offensive, right, then you put together the next plan. Then you start providing equipment and training again. How many months is that going to take on the shortest possible timeline? Jim I agree. <laughs> Jim <laughs> knows. This. I can see him shaking his head. You can see those exactly
1: what I'm saying it just it just drives you crazy i won't vent but it just drives you crazy you're absolutely right mike
0: um on the china question which is an interesting one i mean how um i, I mean obviously your answer is going to be depends it depends i already know but um how do we think about the impact that china's support to russia could have i mean how decisive could it be um Yeah, how do we think about that? Because in my view, actually, like it it does seem extremely plausible to me that Beijing at some point will cross the so-called red line that the Biden administration has laid down um, and step in and support its strongest ally. To me, I I understand all of the risks and all of the blowback that Beijing um, would incur as a result of that decision. But to me, that seems like the direction of travel. But I mean, what? Just interested in your views on whether or not you think Beijing might take that step, but really um, importantly too about how impactful uh, that would be for the Russian military.
2: So I think that Beijing will basically try to salami slice this this uh, U.S. policy position. For as long as they can without having to cross it. I don't think they will necessarily really cross it. I don't know. Right. I'm speculating here as anybody else within the space. I don't think they necessarily would cross it unless Ukraine was so successful that they saw Russia as, as really being on the verge of defeat. However, it's clear that, um, Beijing does not want to see Russia lose this war in a way that would be catastrophic for the regime, for uh, for Russia writ large, and that what they're likely to do is uh, supply the key components and the key elements you would need to increase its defense industrial output, which will not make impact in the coming weeks or months, but you would appreciate down the line in this war Uh, This issue directly impinges on your previous question, which is how well can Russia sustain this war? And I said it depends also on what role China plays in Russia's ability to sustain the war, because that could actually be a significant factor and will become more significant over time. So right now, I can't I really can't tell. But I have this impression that China is slowly inching away from the position it initially took on this conflict. And defining ways to support Russia that could be materially impactful without necessarily crossing this kind of threshold, right? And they're going to see how far, how what they can do without incurring kind of uh, the wrath of U.S. sanctions. But also on the other hand, you see the trajectory of U.S.-China relations are such that the downside for China arming Russia is increasingly decreasing. That's the reality. The oper- the cost, the potential cost, given the trajectory of U.S. export controls. And our bilateral relations might also be well decreasing. That's just my own interpretation, of course, open to your thoughts.
0: No, I mean, I I agree. I I think that's the direction of travel and we're getting closer and closer to more significant support. And it obviously also runs in the other direction with Russia just helping China with its nuclear um, plant. There was a big story about that. So obviously, the relationship only continues to deepen, despite this position that Russia is in now, um, and China is in no way backed away from its closest ally in in Moscow. Jim.
1: And you know, I, I just to uh, footstomp something that I think I heard Mike say, uh, which is, you know, the cost to uh, China of providing assistance to Russia. That cost uh, is probably going to be decreasing uh, just in terms of what the EU and some of the European nations have said and done over the past few weeks, where it's obvious that they are really nervous about uh, having an impact on on European trade with China and Germany particularly. Um, there's been some articles about what the car makers are, are trying to do in China. So um, if, if I were in Beijing, I would know that uh, I would see how how important uh, the EU and Europe still look on trade with with them and you know with China. So uh, I think they probably feel they can take a couple of steps over that red line, knowing that while Europe might have a lot of rhetoric to throw their way, th- the Europeans still feel their trade relations are so important they're not going to let anything damage cars and whatever else going is going from uh, from China to I mean from Europe to China and, and back. So. That reduces that cost to China. I think they feel that Europe's not going to let it get get to where they're going to damage trade relations.
0: all right. We're getting close to time. Um I'll, I probably have two questions left, but one comes back to a point earlier. Where like we you know one of the Biden administration's key objectives was we you know you said avoiding the direct military confrontation or escalation the other was ensuring Russia's strategic defeat and I know like we in the West love to back pat and we point out all of the reasons why Russia will emerge weaker that NATO has expanded et cetera et cetera but Mike how do you think that Moscow is viewing this war because my sense is that they're not looking at this and feeling like they have been strategically defeated.
2: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure it depends on who you ask there. But I think I think Russian elites writ large understand uh, the extent to which this war has been a disaster, but also feel that they survived a lot of the impact of the sanctions last year and maybe sort of far less concerned about the the prospect that Western pressure will lead to a sort of an economic collapse and crisis. I think in many respects they are tied to Putin as long as this war goes on, and Putin's political problems likely really begin when the war is over. I think that Russia is switching steadily to um, a a wartime uh, state that is it's a it's a regime that was. Fundamentally defined by being a demobilization regime that's trying to mobilize and is having a hard go at it. But eventually you will see uh real changes in, in both the country and the economy once it aligns to the reality of this war. I suspect the Russian leadership is quite cognizant of the fact that the Russian military at this stage, especially after this failed winter offensive, is just not in a position, a good position. Uh, to be able to capture any additional territory, right? I don't know if that's true, but that's my my impression, interpretation. I think they're weighing the prospect of mobilization and desperately trying to avoid it. If they're going to commit to a second wave of mobilization later this year, it will only be with the expectation that the Russian military will be able to make something of it. I think Russian leadership has settled into a protracted war and some time ago. And like the proposition that this war will go on for several years and that they're not going to give up on their objectives and they're not necessarily going to be interested in negotiating either. I wish that some of our political leadership have fully accepted the prospect that this will be a protracted war. I think to some extent they have, but they haven't articulated the narrative of what does that mean. Right. What are are we going to do then? And why is the focus on the next three-month offensive if we accept the proposition, this will be a long war? You know, this is my own basic question. Um, so there, and I think that, you know, there is still this sense probably within Russian leadership that over time they can grind Ukrainian forces down. And the reason for that is leaders of major powers or great powers tend to think that war is fundamentally a contest of wills because they are in charge of a country with a lot of latent power that they can mobilize. But the reality is that great powers lose wars all the time. And leaders always like to cherry pick from history the analogies they like of how the country mobilized and overcame a disastrous uh, situation or set of political decisions. And they never like to pick from the parts of history where they lost lots of wars or when they mobilized the country and still lost or um, when they couldn't recover from a major strategic blunder. And so what I think you often get is this effect that leaders like Putin assume that this is a contest of wills, and that over time they can still uh, snatch some kind of success from defeat, and that they are ultimately not defeated unless they negotiate. Why military victory does not confer political victory, right, As as you said, Andrea, the loser has to actually uh, decide when the war is over. And I think the Russian view is probably as long as they don't negotiate, then they haven't been defeated in principle, even though objectively you could say that militarily they've suffered a host of defeats.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I just your, your, your point about kind of all of the impact of the war on society. And, you know, there very well may have been members of the political elite and even within the regime who disagreed with the war. But now the fact of the war, now that it's upon them, they don't want to lose the war. And I think, I mean, I think part of what you're saying, too, is, I mean, this is it's a much broader war with the West. I mean, I think they view themselves at war with the West. And I keep coming back to that comment that between she and Putin after their summit, where she leans over and says, you know, we're we're seeing the changes, the likes of which we haven't seen in a hundred years. And you and I are creating them or driving them or whatever the exact quote was, but it's just a very different way of looking at the conflict. Um, So yeah. Okay. So final question, which is just, uh, I'm not. I know that you don't like to make projections about the offensive, but what it, what at least are you looking at to try that will help you understand um, how things are developing on the battlefield? Like what what's important to be watching at this point?
2: Hmm. Um, so I think that in offensive operation you're probably looking at a series of operations that'll unfold over several months so it's easier for me to say what i'm not looking to so what i'm not looking to is territorial changes early on which is what the media will look into because they select for what can be observed and that's actually a lagging indicator in war right usually territorial territory changing hands that's like the dependent variable that is Uh, and, and people always select for it because of what they can see, but actually the other factors are more significant and they're causal of territory changing hands, right? Right. So I'm not looking to see necessarily a stunning immediate Ukrainian success. Um, I am not going, even going to be sure in the initial offensive operation, if that's the real offensive or if that's a secondary offensive meant to fix Russian forces in a different part of the line and the main offensive effort is going to be somewhere else, okay? okay. So I want to assume that the start of the operation is actually the start of the operation. Um, you know, third, I'd be looking to basically observe um, to what extent is Ukraine able to sustain The actual military effort, which is to say more specifically that Ukraine's main struggle had been not launching an offensive operation, but sustaining momentum after breakthrough for all sorts of reasons. Because the challenging part in offensive operations was so so much harder than being on the defenses. You need logistics, you need a lot of enablers, you have to be able to sustain a breakthrough. Breaking through the initial Russian line is not necessarily going to be all that hard. And the Russian forces will retreat to a secondary line. And I'll have a third reserve line behind that. And the question really is going to come up what happens at that second second set of lines, right? Breaking through the main the first line is not the hardest part. Let's to be honest about it. So the question is will Ukraine military be able to sustain that effort, given the runway that they've been given in terms of supplies and ammunition, which could last you know several months, but but doubtfully beyond that in in my view. That's what I'm going to be looking at. And, and bottom line, I will not be judging the outcome of this, assuming, let's say, it starts in the coming weeks or month. I wouldn't be looking to assess where uh, the war is and the real outcome of this offensive until uh, the latter part of the summer or end of the summer. And that's the last, that's the last point I want to make. A lot of folks will be trying to judge this on a week-by-week basis, and I always say that's the wrong way to analyze a war and to follow war. It's the difference between day trading stocks, right? <laughs> And occasionally checking in on what's happening in the yep. market.
1: Yep, yep, yep. I, I I'll just throw two two things. And Mike is exactly right. Just the, or two things. People who who remember well, they don't remember. But if you read about the Allied forces, 1944, 1945, uh, outrunning logistics as they were heading towards Germany. You know, it happens to the best of us. You know, that's that's the thing about an offensive, and, and logistics is everything. Uh, and they run out of fuel you run out of fuel so our, I hope we're gonna be pumping fuel <laughs> in there I mean but that's the first thing second thing is uh and again w- with the media I, you know as we talk to them um we I think we have to emphasize that don't look on, uh, on a successful offensive as we saw last year it's not going to look like that and if it doesn't look like that that doesn't mean uh that the offensive itself is is not successful. You know, uh, I think I think in a lot of ways it's too easy to look at the, um, you know, what happened last year with that offensive that the Ukrainians uh, ran uh, and say that's the pattern that we're going to look for is that. And that's just not it at all. And, uh, uh, you know, and so I hope that uh, we can get that word out because it certainly will uh, improve everyone's understanding of what the next few months
2: could look like. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Jim, those are great points. Uh, my own hypothesis that this offensive operation will look closer to Kyrgyzstan than Kharkiv, but it's going to be very much its own creature. Yeah, Ukraine has set aside a force that has not been on the front, that is newly trained, mobilized, and equipped. This offensive will test, you know, a, a theory of victory that with Western training equipment, Ukraine can engage in a more efficient uh, way of fighting and. Uh, it's going to pit a force that's hitherto not been tested on the offense against a force that's hitherto not been tested on the defense because Russian mobilized personnel and these newly developed and entrenched lines have also not significantly been tested either. And so it's, I think, very fair to say that we don't need to make predictions in the space. It's fair to say that it depends on this contingent, yep. and it's going to look different than the previous two offensives. And we actually have not seen a matchup of these two forces before. And it's easy to, for folks to assume in, you know, the 14th month of the war that they actually have seen these two militaries fighting for the last 14 months. But that's actually not the case. You have not seen these two forces fighting uh, in a meaningful way because these armies don't look remotely the way they did when this war began. And right. you're going to see two forces come up against each other in this coming offensive operation – that have not significantly engaged each other in this way thus far. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of. Um, And so, yeah, the uncertainty surrounding how this goes is tremendous. So
1: including the equipment that the Ukraine will have. I mean, they we haven't seen those on the battlefield either. So.
0: Well, this was excellent, Mike. Thanks for um, thanks for doing it as always. Um, really important insights. And I know um, you help people understand quite a lot more than they did before about how to kind of think about and look at this war. So thank you very much for taking the time. And um, I'm sure we will do it again soon.
2: All right. Thanks for having me back.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.